John 8, verses 1 through 11. Um, but Jesus went to the mountain of, of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman standing, still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thank you very much for reading the right passage. <laughs> um, I'm feeling slightly daunted to talk this evening um, about Jesus not condemning a woman, because I was talking before <clears throat> we began this evening to Dave and Mark about the tennis today, and I shared some of my views about tennis. They're laughing. They're ashamed, I hope. And I'm a Roger Federer fan, and I, I was not ashamed of that until Dave and Mark looked at me quite strangely. And I said, well, Jesus not, does not condemn me, even if you do. And they both said, that's not what Jesus told me. <laughs> so, Jesus does not condemn. <laughs> there was more to that story. I'll come back to that. <laughs> anyway, moving on from the tennis. Um, I'd like to start this evening with a very short game. And I don't want you to worry because it doesn't really involve active participation. Um, it's just a series of questions. Um, I'm sure you will have been um, made to play this game if you, if you know anybody under the age of about 12. I think there are also adult versions of this game, but we won't visit those this evening at all. So this is a game called Would You Rather? And so would you rather break your wrist or your ankle? Let you think about that. Would you rather? Would you rather drink frog spawn or eat some worms? You have to pick one. Last one. For the rest of your life, would you rather be too hot or too cold? They're impossible questions. And that's the point of the game, isn't it? So children love making you um, pick the impossible call. They trap you into making a decision. And the minute you try and ask them details, they, they don't give you any answers to that. You just have to pick one, and there's no middle ground. And so this passage this evening, while we might think that it's about um, how we deal with sexual sin or our attitudes toward women in society, actually, at the root of it, is entrapment. Because we see the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus into saying something that would merit his arrest and would allow them ultimately to kill him. Because so far in his ministry, he's been creating quite a stir and he's been ruffling a lot of feathers. 
So just before we begin, we've, we've read that um, passage from the NIV, and if you've read along with the NIV, you might notice some words there that say that this story was not included in the original manuscripts, and you might think, oh, should we be spending time on this? Should this be in scripture? And very, very briefly, yes, we should be spending time on it. It's not that scholars think this does not belong in scripture. They just think it's a bit quizzical that it's landed in the Gospel of John. They think it's more typical of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, one of the other Gospels. It doesn't really go with the language that's used in John, and it's not a very typical story that we would find in John. But scholars are very happy that this did happen and that it's well worth um, our time this evening. So, as I said, it's not really the focus of adultery um, that I want to focus on just now, or even keeping the law. I think the story is about entrapment, it's about rescue, and it leads to hope. And these are the themes we're going to be looking at um, together for the next few moments. So, entrapment, rescue, and hope. Firstly then, this woman obviously is trapped. And we saw that in verse 3. She's caught in adultery, and the scribes and Pharisees, they take her and make her stand in the middle of the crowd. And it doesn't tell us how she feels, but we can imagine the humiliation um, that she is feeling. And it's here that we see the first signs that these Pharisees, they're not really interested in justice being done. Because really, we know that adultery it's not a one-person sport. So where is the man? And we could think, okay, maybe this culture allowed men to do whatever they liked, and it's only the women that would be punished for adultery. But the Pharisees, they refer to Jesus in verse 5 to the law of Moses. And we can find the law of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 22, there's lists of the consequences of adultery, and they're very specific. So if this woman was married, um, then she and the man that she was committing adultery with should die. That's what the law of Moses says. Now, it's not specific how they should die, but both of them should die. If the woman is engaged, then she and the man should die, and it actually specifies that they should be stoned. So the law of Moses does not let the man off the hook. So what then are we to think of these Pharisees? Are they maybe chauvinistic? They're not really interested in, in the man. Or maybe the man fled the scene and they couldn't catch him, so they're just bringing the woman, trying to get justice that way. Well, really, verse 6 identifies this for what it is, because it says in verse 6 that it's not just about the woman being trapped, but they are using the question to trap Jesus. They've already, in the previous chapter, in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, they've already throughout that chapter been throwing accusations in Jesus' direction. And there's three different ones that, that we can cite here. So in verse 15, the Jewish, Jewish leaders say that Jesus has never studied, so he's not worth listening to. In verse 20, when Jesus actually asks the crowd why they're trying to kill him, they say, well, it's because you're demon-possessed another accusation. And then in verse 27, he's accused of just coming from the wrong place. So it's no surprise that they are still trying to trap Jesus. And this is when we get his response. He bends down and he just starts writing in the ground. And straight away we're thinking, what's, what's he writing? Is he writing something from scripture? Is he writing maybe a list of their sins? 
Is he just doodling? Well, we don't know, and we'll never know. And I think the point is not what he was writing, because the wind is going to come and blow that away. Feet will trample through that dust very quickly. <clears throat> this is about Jesus taking control of the situation. He's not going to be rushed, and he's certainly not going to start debating and arguing to try and defend himself. He slows everything right down. And we can almost just imagine the crowd waiting for his response. In verse 7, we see that they keep on questioning him. It's like they're goading him, keeping on firing the questions at him. And it made me think this week we've had such a big week of politics, and we've maybe watched lots of political shows with one politician against another trying to make the other say something that will outrage people, that will make their credibility fall. Entrapment. So we have this woman who is trapped, and we have Jesus who is possibly trapped by this question as well. But then comes his response. So he stands up and he says, let any one of you who's without sin be the first one to throw a stone. And then he goes back to writing on the ground. And we think, well, what, what was that about? What has he done? And it's really the start of the rescue because he's taken the power and in a way he's passed it back to the Pharisees. They're free to throw stones. He's not going to stop them. But he's shifted, Jesus has shifted the focus from the law to the heart. He's not going to be tricked. He knows that he's dealing with these scribes and Pharisees who spend their days studying the law. They know it inside out. That's how their days are spent, discussing and debating the ins and outs of the laws. So Jesus doesn't need to enter into a legal debate with them. He's not going to rescue himself or the woman with detailed arguments. It's like that game of would you rather. Maybe some of us were thinking when I mentioned the frog spawn or the worms, you're thinking, well, how much frog spawn? How big are the worms? When you're talking about a break to my ankle, how significant a fracture is that? How quickly might I recover? And when you say too hot, how hot is hot? Could I cope with that? We're trying to find the details to find the least bad option going forward. And what Jesus does, he's not going to clutch at the detail because he just changes the game completely. It's not about the law with Jesus. It becomes a personal matter of the heart. He's taking it into morals rather than laws. And his reply is spot on because, again, going back to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, this time in chapter 17, it says that those who witness the sin being done, they should be the ones to throw the first stones. So Jesus is right. But it also says there that those witnesses who are going to throw the stones must not be guilty of this particular sin themselves. We know that around the world today there are societies <clears throat> where women will be condemned for adultery. Uh, bringing themselves and their families into shame. And we also know that the men, we can maybe turn a blind eye to that, and they can continue to lead uh, a seemingly respectable life while we all turn a blind eye to double standards. But Jesus cuts through that when he asks the men really to scrutinize themselves. And as a result, those men who came to shame Jesus 
they now end up leaving in shame. It's really interesting that those who are oldest, we see this in verse 9, those who are oldest realize first that they are in no position to throw the stone, and they just leave one by one. And maybe as they go, they realize that actually the only person in that crowd who is remotely qualified to throw a stone is the sinless one that is Jesus himself. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's rescued the woman, and he treats her with respect. In verse 10, he calls her woman, which is a very respectful title. So this reply has saved Jesus for now, but the Pharisees, they've been trying to trap him, and they don't stop here. Jesus knows that they're trying to kill him. It's said that at the very first verse of chapter 7. I wonder how many of us here know uh, off by heart the most famous Bible verse in the world, apparently, so Google will tell you, and it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's apparently the most famous Bible verse. And I was taught that as a child, and I'm sure many of us were as well. But I was never taught the verse that follows it off by heart. And it's John 3.17, obviously. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is not condemning this woman. He tells her so. He's giving her a new start. He's offering her hope. Quite a number of years ago, uh, my husband and I visited Zambia. Um, it was a big, exciting trip. We were going to visit friends who had moved out there. They were missionaries. And one day, uh, I was driving their car, and I got a speeding ticket in Zambia, which is not a good thing, and I'm not proud of it. I did not realize that we were driving on a proper road. <laughs> I thought it was a dust track, and I was very surprised when police officers jumped out from bushes and gave me a ticket. Um, these are not excuses. Speeding was not okay. So the ticket, I had to pay 64,000 kwacha at the time, and they gave me a little form to say I had paid my fine. It was about four or five pounds, I think, at the time, and we drove away, and I gave my humble apologies, and off we went. Now, over dinner that night, uh, the people we were staying with were um, laughing a little bit at how uh, the law works in Zambia. And they said, if I had been uh, driving as I was and got my speeding ticket, and if I had carried on driving down that road and maybe half an hour later had still been speeding and had been stopped by a different officer, I could have said, oh, no, it's okay. I've already been done today. Look, here's the evidence. Here's my little chitty of paper. And they would say, oh, sorry, carry on. Go, go on your way. Now... I don't know if that's true, and I'm a very gullible person, but it makes the point, doesn't it? Because it just seems really illogical. Apparently, the same was true for drink driving as well, that you could just say, oh, no, I've been done already. I'll just carry on driving. Which we just think, that's crazy. It just goes against our natural instincts. When I was given that fine, the point of perceiving the fine is that you really think about your actions. And I groveled to the policeman, and I apologized to the police officers, and I got back in the car, and I drove so carefully with my eyes glued to the speedometer all the way back to the house. It seems completely wrong to think that I could carry on driving in a reckless manner after I had been done for speeding. And it's a bit like that with this woman. So she's been rescued. She's been offered a better way of living. 
to turn away. Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Turn away from that. You've got a chance to start again. He doesn't plow through the detail of the law with her, saying this is what you got wrong, this is what you got wrong, you also got this wrong, you must from now on do this, 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 and this. It's not about the detail with him. He's just inviting her to live life with him and go and be free, sin no more. The hope that he's offering her is culturally mind-blowing for a woman that was caught in adultery at this time. But with Jesus, it's hope rather than guilt that's given the final word. And so I wonder then this hope for you and I today, as Christians, God is calling us to live holy lives. And anything less than that should concern us. But at the same time, the idea of living a holy life, it sounds quite daunting. But it's not meant to be a life that's spent picking through the rule books, wondering what maybe I can get away with, how far can I take something. So if I'm meant to be generous, well, what's the minimum that I need to give to be deemed generous? If I'm not meant to speed, what's the fastest I can drive at before I'm done for speeding? It's not about the details and the nitpicking. Jesus invites us to live our life with him and be free. The author, um, Richard Foster, some of you have probably read him, he says this about a divinely transformed heart. He says it will produce right action. It simply can't do otherwise. And I think that's so often the case that our actions, we don't think of them as maybe being a consequence of something much deeper and more profound. It's our union with God that allow our hearts to be changed. It's from our heart that our action comes. And maybe we struggle in the everyday to be good Christians and do the right actions, do the right things. But maybe we've given no thought to where those actions come from, from the heart. And maybe we've tried to change our hearts. Maybe we've tried to be better. But it's God that will change our hearts. We can't really do that on our own. And so allowing God to change our hearts, it's not really any work on our part. It requires attention, but it really requires us to offer ourselves to the transformative work of God in our lives. And so this passage made me think about this woman who has this invitation or is it an instruction to go and sin no more, to live a free life? And I thought about us, and I thought maybe, are we spending our time in God's company? Are we inviting him into our everyday mundane? Are we inviting him into our big decisions, into our small dilemmas? What about our prayer life? Are we intentional with that? Do we spend time in Scripture? Life with Jesus is not about following the rule book. And it's Galatians that says that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And I wonder if we can say today that we are living freely with Jesus, that we are allowing him day by day to change our hearts. Because it's from these transformed hearts that holy living will come.
So, entrapment, rescue, hope. Let's pray. <laughs> Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this evening for this story that brings hope. We want to thank you for the way that Jesus reached out to this woman, that he wasn't trapped and he would not allow this woman to be trapped. We thank you that, you, that he offered this woman hope and that he offers us the same. I want to bring ourselves to you this evening, Lord. However we're feeling, whatever we've done, the state of our hearts, and I ask that you would allow us to consider our hearts afresh, that you would show us the parts of ourselves that we choose to ignore, that we choose not to look there. And I ask as hard as it is that you would convict us of that, but that you would also help us to bring it to you, that you would help us to allow you to transform our hearts. And so I ask that you would come and that you would have dealings with us, Lord. Have your way with us. Open our eyes to the work that you want to do in our lives and our hearts. And I pray that we would be a holy people walking with you and for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.